Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry with my sorry microphone here again. I'm going to get a better one next week. Um, I am an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens, a powerlifter, highland games athlete. I run Strength Guild. And amongst other things, and I am now I'm a semi-professional camper because we're going again tonight. So cool! <laughs> I, I just need to start being paid to camp, and then I'll be professional. There you go. So, Extra income there. Yeah. Uh, this is Dr. Mike T. Nelson, uh, associate professor of the Caring Institute, creator of the Flex Diet Certification, and definitely not a professional camper. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to be learned with camping about how yeah. how simply you can live. Kelly mm-hmm. and I have been looking into that big time lately. Oh, I think that's how I'm going to retire is just get a like an airstream or something and just tour the country. You know? Yeah, I'd be able to do it. All right. Um, on topic here, we are going to talk about hard gainers today. After the break, uh, what's behind it? Um, what do the guys do? when they have a client that says I'm a hard gainer. Um, partly this is going to be set up by one of the pieces of science news we have. But let's start with a listener mail. So this is a long time ago student, uh, Aaron, but he wrote and he just said, I had a question about something you may know of in your field. Um, it's the NOE metabolic analyzer, P-N-O-E. Have you heard of it? If so, what do you think of it? So Mike is our resident engineer. I thought Mike would know the most. Yeah, so I have one. I bought one of the early ones. I did my PhD work looking at metabolic flexibility. So we use the metabolic carts, right? So for people who aren't familiar, you've seen the pictures of people on a treadmill usually or a bike. They've got this big hose that's stuck in their mouth. They're kind of drooling all over. It goes into a machine and it can tell you all sorts of cool stuff can give you information about how much fat you're using, how much carbohydrates, uh, breathing rate. Uh, most of the higher-end ones have uh, two sensors, an oxygen and a CO2 sensor. So that's how you can get your RER, just going to tell you your fuel usage. And it's one of those things where it's super fascinating. They can be kind of temperamental <laughs> at times. We had some other newer ones. I won't name the company, but I... <clears throat> frantically finished up my PhD work on the older machines because the new ones we got in a different department, I didn't trust farther than I could toss them. So they can be sort of finicky. 
So when I saw this come out at first, I was pretty skeptical. I'm like, okay, so you're going to do a portable unit. <clears throat> you're going to say it's medical grade, which means it can be calibrated by gas. You compare right. it to a known gas, which makes it more accurate. And it's going to be substantially cheaper, although not cheap. Like, so normal metabolic carts, you're looking at thirty to $50,000, somewhere around there. And that's not really the portable ones. And long story short, I ended up uh, buying one of the earlier devices and bought all this stuff to do the gas cow. And I, I like it. It's been, it seems to be pretty accurate. They had a fair amount of bugs and some weird stuff initially. Um, they do have a validation study that's published. So you can look in Frontiers and Sport and Active Living. It's called Validation and Reliability of the New Portable Metabolic Analyzer Panoe. If you don't remember any of that, you can just type in Panoe Validation PubMed into the old Google, and that should pull it up. Um, pretty decent study. I mean, you could always argue that you know the power could be a little bit more, um, but correlations were pretty good. You could also argue that one of the issues with metabolic carts in general is what's your gold standard and what are you comparing it to? So a lot of times you're just comparing it to another metabolic cart and assuming that's accurate. <laughs> but um, yeah, I like it. And the software, they did do some software upgrades to it. Uh, you can run it through your phone and it's pretty good. Like for exchangeability for some of the parts, you can sterilize it. You can uh, put a filter on it. So in terms of trying to keep it sterile, if you're doing testing on multiple people, uh, which I haven't done a whole lot. I had planned to, but this whole past year, I ended up just shutting down the garage and everything and just said, okay, no, for a time period, no one's coming in, nobody's going out because I'm exercising here too bad. <laughs> so I don't have as much data from other people as what I would like. And the other nice part is you can get a, a MOXIE sensor, which looks like muscle oxygen levels, and that will coordinate through the PNOE software. So what I liked about that, and that's kind of the main reason I went with it too, is that now I can get a local muscle reading. So if you're doing a rower, we can put one on your right quad, your left quad, and maybe a non-sort of working muscle like the left deltoid. We can look at local oxygen consumption, maybe proximate of blood flow. And then we have all the systemic numbers too. So we can look at all your flow rates going in and out. Um, yeah, so I think overall it's pretty good. Uh, full disclosure, I paid full price for it and bought it from them but i do do some affiliate stuff if people are interested they can send me a note and i can put you in touch with them i do make a little bit of money if someone purchases through me but that wasn't oh. my wasn't my initial tent when i when i bought the device because i was like well something i've kind of wanted for a long time but couldn't justify 40 to 50 grand on hmm. something but yeah Six, seven thousand. Uh, okay, yeah, it's like ten yeah. percent. Right. Right. Yeah, right. So, yeah. Um, just pulling back the lens. Here's what I I said. I just said there have been a few brands of portable metabolic carts over the years. Some of them had sensors that wore out over time. Like one of them, I think, was called the New Leaf, and I was sh shocked that I can't remember if it was the O2 or the CO2 analyzer, but it like got used up, and I'm like whoa, wait a minute, what? Because, of course, the big ones in labs, big metabolic carts, they're more or less permanent. So I said, um, check into the sensors and whether or not they wear out. 
Um, I said, in my experience, portable carts give variable data. So sort of like what you were saying, Mike, with different brands over the years. Uh, and I've never seen those flaws happen with the big metabolic carts in university labs and hospitals. Um, I told Aaron, I said, I'd want to see a demo uh, and then be able to compare it to a regular cart. Like literally get your BMR on the Pinoe, I guess, and then on like a, you know, uh, a TrueMax 2400 or one of these big carts. Um, and of course, people out there who are interested in basal metabolic rate or exercise metabolic rate like VO2, VO2 max, of course, there are free ways to do some of this stuff. I mean, you could just hand calculate someone's BMR with a Harris-Benedict equation mm -hmm. or a Mifflin-St. Jor. I mean, that's not perfect because it doesn't take into account, you know, thyroid status and all that kind of thing. Um, but you can get a ballpark with your just age, sex, height, weight, you know, with um, for BMR with a hand calculation. If you want to know VO2 max, there's a ton of tests out there. Mike uses these probably, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, one mile walk jog test, there's rowing test, stair stepper test if you've got a whole team, just like a recovery heart rate. So there's, there's some ways to do this for free, but those are all estimation tests, right? They're not actual data. So anyway, that's, what, that's how I respond. It's, it's more or less on par with what you're saying, Mike, except that I'm glad you have one. Of course you do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you can speak to it directly. So, And that's very cool that it, it will somehow um, coordinate with local oxygen sensors. Wow. So, okay. Yeah, and I agree with all that. I mean, one of the things I did is I just got up every morning, gas cowled it, and did my RMR just to see how steady it was. So turn the unit, turn everything off, turn it back on, because your RMR is not going to change that much day to day. And the numbers, at least in NM1, were, were relatively stable. A little bit of difference, but not not all that much. So most of the stuff I've done, I've compared it to the 2K uh, equation using for rowing for VO2 max. So using the gas at the same time and then doing the rowing. And again, that could be, you don't know which one would be off if they are off. <clears throat> Turns out they're pretty darn, pretty darn close. Oh, uh, mm -hmm. I haven't been able to get into a university setting to compare it yet. Uh, I have some buddies who have done that, and they said it was relatively close. Um, so, yeah, and I <clears throat> I don't trust the old New Leaf ones farther than I could toss them. I thought they were a big POS, but... <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, early, maybe early attempts, you know, maybe technology. Early ones, sure. yeah, yeah late yeah. 90s, early 2000s. Right, right. Not saying the new ones are bad. I know nothing about the new ones, so. <laughs> right, no, right. Don't want to get sued. Right, no. right. All right, um, everybody, we are pressed for time today um, because of technical problems this morning, but um, here is a study for Phil, and I, oh. I, I'm genuinely interested in what you have to say about this. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is brand new, like June. Like, this just happened this year from, uh, let's see, this is the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. Effects of augmented eccentric load bench press training on one rep max performance and electromyographic activity in trained power lifters. Okay. So this is the kind of stuff, of course, some machines will do this and whatnot. They're going to uh, make the downward part of the repetition impossibly heavy right heavier than your concentric max so here's what they did um it says augmented eccentric load 
AEL training has been shown to elicit greater lower body strength increases and faster performance improvements compared with traditional strength training, but, you know, less is known about upper body muscular strength. So um, four weeks, they did this type of training, augmented eccentric load, and they looked at the bench press. Um, they had eight competitive power lifters. They completed five training sessions of seven singles. Okay. Okay with up to five minutes in between each set. Um, each session was completed at a predetermined percentage. So they did 90%. So they're doing seven singles with 90%. Wow. Um, so and these are trained guys. Now, mm. again, this makes me think about how you used to critique Chad Waterbury about truly elite guys probably aren't going to do seven singles with 90%. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. But um, – and then the eccentric part was 105 to 125 percent of their one rep max. So again, you know, more than they could press upward. Um, after four weeks of this augmented eccentric load training, one rep max performance significantly increased. <laughs> this font is two percent, two two point font. I can't read it. Um, in addition, EMG amplitude of the pec major decreased during the 125 percent eccentric portion to about 60% of pretest values. Uh, it says, furthermore, peak power of 1RM increased 37% from pretest to post-test, so looking at power. Um, anyway, these study findings suggest that incorporating augmented eccentric load bench pressing into a four-week training cycle may be a novel strategy to improve one rep max performance in competitive power lifters over a short period. Now, my first thought was there's no control group that just did regular training mm -hmm. that, I could, that I could see here. Um, so just looking at the abstract, I would want to see this compared to guys who didn't have the augmented negative. Yeah, that just did seven singles at 90%. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So. <clears throat> um, but what do you think? Um, augmented eccentric load, do you – like that idea do you how, how do you play with that practically we, we've you know? done it some it's hard practically especially on the squat uh, deadlift is damn near impossible um because there isn't much of an eccentric on deadlift but um and it, or an easy way to just load it like we'll use weight releasers sometimes on squat um so you can go down with more weight than you can handle and then it releases you come up um they're hard. I've played with them a lot. I've played with a lot of tension on the weight releasers and a little bit on the bar and a little bit on the bar, uh, weight releasers and a lot on the bar. Um, I can tell you this. It's probably better. I almost ate shit doing a lot on the bar and a little bit on the weight releasers hmm. because they don't – there's some shift when they let off. Hmm. And if you have, say, 85% plus on the bar and, like, the bar jiggles, that could be ugly. Um, so it seemed to be better for us with a lot on the weight releasers, uh, because then at least if you get shifted around a little bit, like one releaser lets off a fraction of a second before the other one or whatever, uh, you're not, you're, you have a load you can mess around with on the bar. Uh, so you're not in trouble, but, uh, on the bench, it's easy. We've done some of it. Uh, the easiest way to do it, it's not exact. But just have somebody your spotter lean on the bar, mm -hmm. you know, and they okay. push down. You just put manual physical weight on the bar on the eccentric, and then let go. 
uh, and then they can press it up. So I don't know. I would have to say this has to be, especially with that short of time, it's got to be neural. I mean, it just does. It's just your body getting, you're not gaining that much. You're not, you're not going to gain a crap load of muscle tissue from what would that be? 24, 28 total reps. <laughs> so it has to be neural and it has to be a lot like we'll do walkouts and stuff with heavy squat. Like if I'm, my best is 722, I might walk out 800 and it just gets you ready for that. And part of that is just, it doesn't feel so daunting. So a lot of that's not even neural. It's just mental. Uh, like if I can feel comfortable with 800 on my back, 700 is going to feel good. Uh, so right there, I already have it mentally beat, but yeah, I think it's worth messing with. I mean, I, I think heavy eccentrics can be, can be at least at the very least it can help you mentally. And that's, and, and the mental game's a huge one in strength sports. Uh, we were talking about this uh, this week at the gym. Like, I have one lifter that she used to come to the bar, and you could tell she was doubting it, and something has flipped in the last month or two. And, like, last Saturday, she was like, you could just say, I'm going to kill this weight. And she killed it, and it was heavier than she's ever done before. And uh, the biggest change was just her mental attitude. Uh, something flipped in there. And generally, if you think... If you just come to a bar and you 100% believe I'm going to get this, unless it's a stupid load that's like 50% more than you've ever done or something, you, there's a good chance you're going to get it. So uh, if you can get yourself used to heavy loads and comfortable with them, it can help. So, but Okay. Yeah, my guess is it's, it's neural. And like the bench press, I think, is an easy one to, as long as you have a training partner, it is the easiest that you can do uh, as far as eccentric overload. Right, I'd just love get it. somebody. Right. Just get somebody to lean on the bar. <laughs> right, yeah. And, uh, you're not going to be exact about it. You like we can't. You can't add like 25 pounds, but right. you're adding some. So yeah, just yeah, but, wing it. Yep. Yeah, it looks like looking at this tiny font. Um, there was about a six percent increase. That's over still this good. That's good. Mean, yeah, I mean, if these guys are trained, I, it, exactly. now, I don't know how elite they are. Again, I'd have to go drag out the methods and look, like, how competitive are they, you know? Uh, but in any case. Well, uh, I mean, let's say they're a 400-pound bench pressure. They're getting almost 25 pounds in four weeks. That's a good That's a good job. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, worth yeah. it, you know? Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, Mike, what do you think as far as um, – augmented eccentric stuff for me i'm always thinking just negatives and growth you know hypertrophy and that kind of stuff but these guys are power lifters you know and this is all about performance of course what do you think yeah i mean i think it's a super interesting area um obviously i'm good friends with my buddy cal deets who's talked about triphasic training so taking a period of time doing a eccentric kind of block or some type of overload or slower is different ways of doing it and then Two weeks of a concentric and then two weeks of a fast explosive. I'm sorry, two weeks of a pause and then isometric and then two weeks of a fast concentric. It's super interesting, kind of like Phil. I've always been fascinated by what are some of the mechanisms. I mean, if I were to guess, Mm -hmm. I agree. I think a lot of it's neural, just getting comfortable with weights that are heavier. I actually bought some weight releasers about a year ago and then realized once they got delivered they were only the extended portion of the bottoms (laughs) oh 
so they've been out of the top portion of them in order to actually use the damn things for like a year now. So that's been kind of annoying. Um, but I've used chains and like Phil said, you can use manual resistance. Uh, the guys who run Hype Gym in New York have the super fancy Kaiser equipment that's pressure where you can literally change the concentric and eccentric on every rep, which right. is crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so brutal. It's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you've got some machines like the ARX machine that literally it's just like a gear driven machine where you're pushing as hard as you can and it just keeps going. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a different type of eccentric, but I would hazard a guess that I do think there may be some type of tissue changes there. Maybe not to the actin and myosin. I know Cal has argued that the actin and myosin heads kind of get ripped apart. We do know that there's more damage and they get kind of rebuilt a little bit stronger, which I think is probably true. But I think some of the other, lack of a better word, connective stuff like Titan and other uh, things inside the muscle, I think might be changing faster than what we were to guess. And maybe that allows you just that more structural type tissue to hold up loads that makes it easier. Again, that's uh, super way far out on the hypothetical limb. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I agree. I've always been fascinated that you could train with 10 or 20% above your maximal ability, right? Yeah. By doing mm-hmm. eccentric stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, handling heavier loads, I don't see how you could not become a bigger and stronger person. So long as you got a partner you can trust or the right kind of uh, equipment. As long as you're safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, the same concept. I mean, it's like all the equipped guys for years talked about how equipment can make you stronger raw lifter. Right. They're allowing you to come down and lift the heavier weight. You take that off and you're now a stronger person, essentially. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I got one other one here and then uh, we'll go to break. Uh, this is interesting, too. Also from uh, the most recent journal of strength conditioning research here from, uh, it looks like, Rantilla and colleagues. Oh, I should point out, we do have some muscle head uh, nerds that listen to us, like uh, Arthur Lynch um, that does the No Lift podcast. This is from the University of Texas, this first one. Um, Montalvo and colleagues. So um, This new one is Rantilla and colleagues. High responders to hypertrophic strength training also tend to lose more muscle mass and strength during detraining than do low responders. <laughs> so quick gainers, quick losers, it looks like. So what did they do? Uh, Ten weeks of resistance training was followed by six weeks of detraining in 24 guys. They did bilateral leg press. Um, they looked at a lot of things. One rep max. Uh, they also they looked at electromyography again, EMG, uh, the vastus lateralis and vastus medialis. So your quads. Um, also looked at transcranial magnetic stimulation for corticospinal excitability. So that's pretty cool. Hmm. People, if you're not familiar, I've seen that played with before, where they're literally using headgear and they're trying to stimulate your motor cortex and that sort of stuff. Fascinating stuff. Uh, and they looked at cross-sectional area, hormones. They just looked at a bunch of things uh, during this training program. The subjects were split into three groups based on how much they grew, essentially. The changes in their vastus lateralis cross-sectional area. There were high responders that had more than a 15% increase. Wow. 
in 10 weeks. There were medium responders, and then the low responders just didn't grow that much, less than 4.5% increase in cross-sectional area. Uh, what did they find? No significant changes occurred in that corticospinal excitability, uh, fancy test there, or in serum hormones. Uh, during detraining, and here it is, during detraining, high responders showed a decrease of minus 10.5% in the cross-sectional area of their vastus lateralis, whereas the other groups did not. Hmm. So um, none of the subgroups decreased in maximal strength during the first three weeks of detraining. And I have my thoughts about that, too. We, we used to talk about that. People will panic. Oh, my God, I'm shrinking, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm so weak. And um, But nobody got weaker in three weeks, it looks like. Uh, it says, whereas the high responders showed a slight rebound in strength. So my understanding is they might have dropped in strength very rapidly with the size loss and then rebounded maybe. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's almost like their bodies are eager to grow, eager to change. Let's put it that way, right? Eager, yeah. to, eager to grow, but also will we'll lose quickly. The present results suggest that strength gains and muscle activation adaptations may take place faster in high responders and also decrease faster compared with other subgroups during detraining. Um, so, Phil, in your gym, any, you know, subjective noticing of that kind of stuff to the big-time hypertrophic, you know, the people who get jacked when they look at a weight, do they also shrink back when they detrain, or what are your thoughts here just from the trenches? My thoughts are I don't know anybody who's taking six weeks off. You know, without being like injured, I, you, right. none of my people would do that. Like a week or two, yeah, but not six weeks. I couldn't okay. get them to leave six weeks, right? Um, and the only like the only reason we'd have that is an injury. So now I can't really measure. Okay. Uh, yes, I couldn't tell you, but the only thing I can think of from a non-scientific point of view, trying to reach into that realm, is maybe these people have a an an elevated rate of turnover of cells. You know, like their protein turnover stuff's high, so they're able to create things quickly, but then maybe it's also, you know, and like me and Mike were talking about before the show, that, that they're finding out that turnover of some cells is faster than we once expected, so maybe they're just turning over a bunch really quick, and they have these bunch of new cells that aren't used to doing this activity. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But Yeah, you know. I, I saw something very similar. Some of the early stuff I did with DOMS and like creatine kinase and stuff, I saw big fluctuations in creatine kinase in the people that were most likely to just be in a high turnover state, right? Mm -hmm. So like out with the damaged, out with the old, in with the new. Um, it might just be that these people are more adaptable. I don't know. Mike, you're a, the adaptation uh, guy, um, you know, as far as um, flexibility of your metabolism yeah. and your tissues, uh, what's your take on this, that the high responders also lose the quickest? Yeah, that's something I've wondered about for a while. I had a video I created a long time ago where I'm like, hmm, maybe we want to accelerate both tissue anabolism and catabolism at the same time so that you can have muscle that's more better adapted to the thing that you're doing and maybe you get a higher hypertrophy and rate of change by doing that. Um so maybe that's what's going on. doesn't sound like they looked at that per se in this study, but that would kind of match why they regressed a little bit not doing it. Um, like I was talking to Phil before the show, uh, Luke Van Lude's lab did a really cool study looking at tissue turnover rates of 
uh, bone, meniscus, ACL, PCL, uh, soft tissue, muscle. And the short version is that it appears soft tissue changes our ligament, tendon, etc. are almost the same as muscle, which is pretty surprising. There's been some other data recently that's agreed with that. And even meniscus, uh, ACL, PCL, those tendons that we think of as more quote-unquote static um, still had tissue turnover rates. Uh, bone tissue turnover rates were much faster than we thought too. So I think this, the system's kind of more plastic. Our ability to change is greater than what we think. And then I always think of Rob telling these old stories of certain professional bodybuilders, maybe drugs aside, who would start training and increase huge amounts of weight in a short period of time and then kind of go back down again. And that gets into the whole potentially you know, pharmacology and training and their outliers and muscle memory and everything else too. Right. Yeah. You know, looking at this, this is, um, Hakkinen's lab in Yvaskula, mm. Finland. Yeah. I've never known how to pronounce that. Yvaskula, Yvaskula. I've been there actually, mm. but, um, I don't know how to pronounce it, but anyway, yeah, lots of cool stuff. Yes, they do. And, and going back for decades, like decades. Cool, cool stuff. Yeah. The other, yeah, my other takeaway from that is what, again, what we talk about, oh gosh, five, 10 years ago on the show about don't freak out over, you know, you're mm-hmm. off two or three weeks. You're not yeah. going to, no, none of these people lost nope. any strength in three weeks. You're probably just going to recover, you yep. know. Um, it's almost like a taper, you know, at that, that might yeah. be a taper, but you know, anyway. And even if you do see a little bit of strength loss, that's probably just you haven't practiced the skill to the highest degree. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's like necessarily muscle or anything to be freaked out about either. Yeah. So, yeah. Phil had a good point about the mental side of handling heavier weights. A lot of this is the mental side. Yeah. You know? So, okay. Let's go to break. And after that, we're just going to touch on uh, briefly hard gainers because obviously one of these, uh, this last paper kind of suggested some people don't respond well. You know, they don't grow well compared to others. So, what's behind that? And then what do you do? Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. Over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Okay, listeners, after more than a decade of joining us on the podcast airwaves, you can now also become viewers on YouTube. This is not our usual simple backup of the audio show, but rather a growing body of video taste tests covering various foods of interest to nutrition enthusiasts, bodybuilders, and powerlifters. From within YouTube, simply search for Iron Radio Taste Test or Nutrition Radio 
taste test. In about 15 minutes, we covered taste and texture, similar to other products, uh, usefulness to the co-hosts, and whether we would recommend the product to certain clients. You may even want to watch our podcast feed or Facebook group for which products are coming down the pike so you can taste test them with us. Join us for this new monthly project. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. All right, everybody, we're back. It's Mike, and it's Phil, and it's Lonnie, and we're going to talk about hard gainers. Um, Before the break, we were touching on a study that suggested that you can, in fact, separate people. Some people will grow, you know, uh, much faster than others, Uh, maybe also lose faster. But, um, Phil, first, let's look at think about the prevalence of this. Do you see people complaining often in your gym that they're a hard gainer? you know, and if so, what do they think it is? What do you think it is? You know? Yes, I no, I've definitely seen it, and I can tell you that ninety—I don't know—I'll just guess ninety percent of the time they're just a poor eater. They don't eat enough. <laughs> um, and the first thing I do, and I, I pulled this up right when you said we're going to do this, is I point them to that old article by Dave Tate where J. M. Blakely gives him advice. And I'll, I'll just read, basically he lays out because Dave's like, I need to gain weight. And Jam's like, he pulls him outside at West Side and he's like, oh, this has got to be some serious shit if he's making me go outside at West Side so other people don't hear. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, tells him he's going to go to McDonald's for breakfast and then a 45 minute straight at a Chinese buffet uh, for lunch. And then, you know, basically dinner, you're going to order an extra large pizza with everything on it. And then you're going to dump a quart of oil onto that. And, uh, he said, you know, I'll read it now. Now, before you lay, it, lay into it, I want you to sit on the couch and stare at that fucker. I want you to understand that that pizza right there is keeping you from your goals. Now you're on the clock, he continues. After 20 minutes, your brain is going to tell you you're, you're full. Don't listen to that shit. You have to try and eat as much pizza as you can before that 20-minute mark. Double the pizzas up. I'm telling you now, you're going to get three or four pieces in. You're going to want to quit. You fucking can't quit. You have to sit on that couch until every piece is done. And if you can't finish it, don't ever come back and tell me you can't gain weight because I'm going to tell you you don't give a fuck about getting bigger or stronger. You know? And that's, <laughs> you know, that's really, I mean, I've had to live that. And it comes down to, like, if you want at a point, if you want to get bigger and stronger, and that's what I tell people, it's not eating when you're hungry. It's eating more when you're not full. And it's horrible. You know? It's literally eating once you're not full, you're putting something else in. And there are people that are like that, you know, like for me to get up to 297 or whatever I got to, that wasn't easy. You know, I had to just fight. The, the eating was much harder than the training. Um, it, was, it makes you feel miserable. But, you know, if you're wanting to get stronger and bigger, that's a big part of it. It's just you have to fuel the, the machine. And there are a lot of people that are into training. And they can do that all the time. But they're real poor at, at, at fueling it. 
you yeah. know, they, they, they just aren't good at it. And usually that's the case. Now there are some people that are, that are, uh, that just have a harder time gaining muscle, but, uh, seem to, but most of the time from what I've seen, it comes down to, they're just not, they're not getting the calories in needed or they don't want to lose. They talk a big game, but they don't ever want to like get their six pack blurred. And yeah. it's like, bro, you got to do that. <laughs> you know, you can't have both of them. Uh, you're you're not getting both things at once. Right. If you really want to get bigger, take a year or two. You know, and it's okay to you know lose your abs. That they don't need to be chiseled. <laughs> right. I'm not telling you turn into you know job of the hut. <laughs> soften up a little bit and gain some muscle, bro. And right. you can come back. I what I people always think that's permanent. It's like take two years, do it. You don't like it, eat less. You'll be thin again you know you'll be lean right again. it's not that hard no so you know phil there was a guy that gave a ted talk i need to look this up but um he was a physicist and instead of dealing with calories because you know he says uh, we're, we're teaching it wrong like people we forget to teach the law of conservation of mass so his whole thing is if you want to lose weight consume less carbon Right in the fats and the carbs. Yeah. So it, the converse of that, I guess, would be the inverse of that would be if you want to gain weight, eat more carbon and nitrogen. Right, more has to go into your black yeah. box into the system than is escaping through your urine and your breath. Yep. Right, nitrogen in your urine and carbon on your breath. And he literally calculated this stuff out. It is a brilliant talk. Um, but yeah, it, it's it, what I've always said to athletes over the years is, yeah, how can you create a new you without fuel and building blocks? Yeah. Like you can't just train harder. Like that's a stimulus, but yes. the, the growth is from what's going in your pie hole, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I agree with that whole 20 minute. I remember reading about that whole, once they start hitting your duodenum, you know, the first stage of your intestines, you know, your brain says, oh, I'm full. Yep. It's like, well, nobody wants to eat until you throw up, right? Because that's counterproductive, but you've got to push it. Uh, yeah, and you of all people know that that's not fun. No. Yeah. So, well, that's you. what people always ask me how I lose 40 pounds so quick after. I'm just eating normal, man. I, <laughs> I'm just eating when I'm hungry. It's pretty easy. You know? So. Yep. Mike, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I would say the same. I mean, with clients, it's always trying to figure out what really is their priority mm-hmm. and a lot of times it comes down to well you know i'm afraid of you know health parameters or losing my abs or whatever and but i'm like but that's fine that's up to you are you happy with your current rate of progress mm-hmm. if you're happy with your current rate of progress then great we'll just keep doing what we're doing you know you won't gain as much weight but if you're healthy and happy with what you're doing then fine um if you're like no this is horrible i hate it yeah Okay, well, now we have to do something different, and different may be quite radical if you're that unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. So, and then sometimes when they hear what they have to do, they're like, "Oh no, I'm okay where I'm at." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm yeah. like, "That's fine." You know, it's not not for me to to decide, but I think laying out, like Phil said, all the options of, you know, at some point you're just not magically going to gain muscle and no fat. It, it's just not gonna happen yeah maybe some freaks it happens when you're new maybe a little bit but you know then we're looking at what is an acceptable ratio you know like if i gain one pound of muscle for even two to three pounds of fat i'm i'm pretty happy with that you know because my gains in terms of that usually are not uh super clean i guess you could say 
Um, but for people that are older, have been doing it for a while. That's pretty common, you know, but if I gain five pounds, I can lose the, you know, 10 or 15 pounds of fat. That's not too bad, really. You know, so it's just prioritizing and, you know, having an honest conversation about what do they want to do? What are their goals? And then setting up the process. And unless you've been working with them for a while, there's no way to predict kind of what their rate of gains are going to be. There's no real way to predict what that ratio is going to be. And then just, you know, if you want to do more of a cut on the other end, then that's fine, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just pulled up. It's Ruben Meerman, M-E-E-R-M-A-N. So he did a couple of TEDx talks. One is called How Breathing and Metabolism Are Interconnected. The other is called The Mathematics of Weight Loss, which is 10 million views. Wow. Um, I think his point, in some ways... And he actually lost a lot of weight. Uh, I believe he's an Australian guy. I show this in class, actually, because he actually shows – he uses some um, temperature changes and whatnot on stage to show you the carbon in your exhaled breath, right? So you don't have to have a metabolic cart like we talked about earlier. He's like, see that? That's carbon, the CO2 that was on your breath. And mm-hmm. But um, – once you get past this idea, and I love this idea, right? It's sort of an ins and outs. It's almost like an accountant. But once you get past this idea of you've got to consume more carbon and nitrogen than you excrete, then, then the next question comes up is how do you partition it into muscle mass, right? So like to echo what you guys are saying, you don't want to just be having a – if it's all going around your gut <laughs> and you're just getting bigger and bigger love handles, you're doing something wrong, bro. Yes. You know, yeah. the, the training stimulus isn't proper at that point. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it does make a lot of sense to Mike's point. Like if you're if you're putting on 10 pounds of fat for each one pound of muscle, now you're you know, you got to question yeah. what's going on. And of course, this is where anabolic drugs come into play and all that kind of stuff where people want to partition and, you know, send every gram to their, you know, deltoids and pecs and quads and everything like that. But um yeah, but I think that's what it comes down to is then how are, are you partitioning uh, not just those calories, but again, um, to Meerman's point, th- that nitrogen and carbon, how are you going to drive it into growth? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line. At some point, you cannot defy physics, right? And you, if you're not growing, then you've got to pour more um, food into that black box. It's just, you know, you're excreting it or exhaling it too quickly, you got to put more in the system. And if that means large pizzas, then damn it, you bring it, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's it's just like like I know how many athletes, like collegiate athletes I've spoken to, they're like, oh, I don't want, I'm not hungry. I'm like, mm-hmm. then I, I'm out. Then I, I want to do a strength coach. His name was Tim. And he's like, Lonnie, don't even talk to them unless they demonstrate to you that they can step up right because they would never tell their coach on the on the practice field oh i don't feel like running the extra you know um drills or laps or whatever they they, they'd be laughed off the field but in fact that's what they're doing on the nutrition side oh i don't feel like it well then don't and be small you know um (laughs) it's it's simple math it's simple i used to say when they would come to me and say i might have a hard time eating enough i'd say i would say i don't care and they look at me like with their jaw open, like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't care. Like, I've given you lots of tools on how to do this. You can drink it. You can eat high-calorie foods. And it doesn't always have to be bad for you stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Avocados and mixed nuts and, like you were saying, glugging olive oil over everything you eat. Eggnog. 
Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, yeah. Pecan pie. Like, there yep. are some things that you can do that are astronomically high calorie. Mm-hmm. And if you're telling me I can't grow, then you're telling me then, like you so graphically put it, filled with that reading, oh, my God. Like, yeah. then, then you don't want it. If you're looking at that pizza, you got to look at that like a loaded bar. Are you going to eat it? If not, then shut up. Yeah, you know? well, and I can tell you, like, both these groups are – like you have the groups that are people that are over fat and don't think they're doing anything wrong. And then the ones that are, they, they're too small and don't think they're doing anything wrong dietary. And usually if you get them to write it down, yeah, you, okay, you are, you know, yep. you're over fat because yeah. Okay. You don't eat much during the day, but then you have a whole tub of Ben and Jerry's. Yep. Come on, man. Quit lying to yourself. You're not helping anybody. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So. You sound like Mike. I mean, you know, monitor yeah. everything because when it's yeah. staring at – when the numbers are staring at you on a timeline, you're like, oh, yeah, I thought I was doing better than that. You there know? are very few people that have like a medical condition that stops them from gaining or losing weight. It's yeah. just fact. It's yeah. usually what you're putting in your pie hole, either too much or too little. <laughs> and it's that simple. Right. Fix it. If you don't want to mm-hmm. fix it, shut up. I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. Um, I've got to agree. I, I think from my experience – the people who are hard gainers are the ones who they're just not eating enough or they're too worried about their abs. Yep. You know, that that's why periodization is a thing, right? I mean, and I think nutritionists were a little late to the table. Strength coaches were doing this much sooner and bodybuilders have done it freaking forever, right? Like there's an off season where you yep. gain mass and then there's an in season where you take 20 weeks and you try to coax off just the fat, you know, yep. and you will you will lose a little bit of muscle when you lean back down. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, you're hoping for that ratio to be mostly fat when it comes off, you yes. know. But yeah, I, I can't tell you how many young people, especially I talk to, here's the curmudgeon, here's the, get off my lawn, but young people and they, they want to gain just muscle mass. Yep. That's, not mm-hmm. how, that's not how the human body works, yep. you know. Um, so. They're looking for that secret. Right. So I, I think it's one of the most valuable things that we can tell people uh, in the gym or in the classroom is how the human body works. Like you don't gain just muscle. You don't lose just fat, you know, 100% on either side. And also the time frames, half a year, a year, right? You're not doing this in a month, you know, mm-hmm. six weeks. Um, in fact, the guys that I've seen get their ass handed to them in, on, in bodybuilding is the, the guys they try to diet too quickly. You yeah. know, and they're like, oh, I'm doing like a, uh, eight or 12 week diet. I'm like, really? Wow. Because, <laughs> you know, I was always hormonally challenged compared to a lot of the guys that I competed against, but man, I needed 20 or 24 weeks. I had to slowly get that stuff off of me yeah. because otherwise I would lose muscle too fast, you know, but I've seen, don't make no mistake. I've seen guys that were definitely users and um, they'd go on like a zero carb diet from day one and cut everything else. Um, low cal, eat nothing but like, you know, a gram per pound of protein and nothing else and just shrink, you know, because mm-hmm. um, they're trying to do it too fast. So what realistic rate of change and percentage of change, it's one of the best things that we can offer people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Unrelated to that super quick, I'd say take whatever time you have, if it's six months and your goal is muscle gain, 
then pick how long you want to stay in that phase. I mean, the longer, the better. I tell people to think in terms of, you know, years at a time. So maybe I'm going to do nine months of trying to gain a little bit of weight. And then I'm going to take three months to slowly come back down a little bit. And then I'm going to reanalyze where I'm at and see what I'm going to do next. Because I see way too many people, like you were saying, Lonnie, and Phil said this too, I'm going to take two weeks to lean out and then I'm going to do my mass gain for two and a half weeks. And then it's like, okay. <laughs> and three years yeah. from now, they went nowhere. Right. Right. Yo, yeah. right. yo. Yeah. Up and down you know. four and five pounds. Congratulations. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You know, people have actually asked all of us, like you guys sometimes talk about 20 and 30 pound gain or with Phil. I mean, it's all relative, of course, but you know, a 50 pound up or down, like, how do you do that? It's impossible. And a lot of it is the rate of consumption or denial and the time frame. It's not happening in a month, and it's not with little tweaks where you're calculating every little gram. No. You know? Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. I, that's going to be all I've got. All right, guys. Cool. We will catch you next week. All right. See you guys. Later. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.